Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. When you found that, put your finger there and turn over to John chapter 1. Mark 6 and John 1. Last two weeks we've looked at the faith of the woman with the hemorrhage and the faith of Jairus. And now this week we're going to look at the unbelief of Jesus' hometown, the Nazarenes. We'll see the contrast between these two groups of people. In the first five chapters of Mark, Christ has shown His power, His sovereignty, His control over all creation. That as the promised Messiah, He has authority over all things. We saw that He has authority over sin, that He has authority over sickness, that He even has authority last week over death. That Jesus is the sovereign Creator and has power over all. And we've already, saw, we've already seen how the scribes have rejected Him. They've rejected His message and they, they have not accepted Him as the Messiah, which He is. But now we're going to see that it extends farther than just the religious leaders of the day. That it ex- extends to His very hometown, His very family. And as a result, Jesus stops giving the truth to them, his hometown, and spreads it out to all the, the surrounding areas. And what I think this does for us is it, is it gives us a prelude to what Jesus is doing in all of the earth. That he is, yes, initially going to the Jews. That he's giving them that message. But when they reject it, it's time to go out to all the nations. And those of us who are Gentiles would, would now have the opportunity to receive the message. And what I think is happening in Mark chapter 6 is summarized for us in John chapter 1. And that's why we're going to read these two verses. John chapter 1, verse 11. He, Jesus, came to His own, Nazareth, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Jesus came to His own. That's the first thing we're going to see in Mark chapter 6. But His own did not receive Him. We'll see that uh, as well in Mark chapter 6. And so as a result, Jesus says, as many as receive Me, to them I will give the right to become the children of God. So with that framework in mind, with that outline in our heads, let's look at Mark chapter 6 and think of this passage in those terms. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went out from there, that is Capernaum, and came into His hometown. And His disciples followed Him. When the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that they went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Christ came to his own people, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God. First thing that we're going to see is that first part of John chapter 1, verse 11. And that is in verses 1 and 2. Jesus came to his own people. His own people are found in his hometown. You see that in the first part of the verse. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. That is Nazareth. We know that this is his hometown because chapter 1, verse 9 tells us. Turn back there with me. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Mark records for us, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus, you remember, was born in Bethlehem, but He quickly moved to Nazareth after having to flee to Egypt. And this is where He was raised. Nazareth Nazareth was 20 miles from Capernaum. Jesus had been ministering in Capernaum. Remember, He came across the lake after having healed the demoniac. He came across the lake and there the the woman touched his garment and was healed. And then also he raised this man's daughter from the dead. Having left there, he went down to his hometown, Nazareth. Twenty miles, a day's walk for a person in that time. The mission for him we see in verse 2 was to teach. This was his primary ministry while he was on earth. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. The idea, or the fact that he was teaching in a synagogue suggests that he was a well-known teacher by this time because what would happen was a synagogue ruler would invite someone to speak. You wouldn't just come there and stand up and start speaking. He would, he would invite somebody to speak in front of all the people. But here we find the last reference that Mark has to Jesus teaching in the synagogue. Now he would go out in the towns because the Jews would would reject him so much. He would now teach publicly or in houses. So he came unto his own people. But notice the response of his people. Second part of verse 2 all the way through verse 6. And many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
So we know that he, his own people did not receive him because, first of all, they question his identity. Who is this man? They're completely amazed. You see what it says there in verse, uh, the end of verse 2. It says that they were astonished. Many listeners were astonished. This was not a, wow, this is great teaching. I've never heard anything like this before. Rather, it was more, who is this guy? How does he get off talking with such authority? We saw this when Jesus was speaking in the synagogue before in chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter uh, yeah, chapter 2. He had not studied under a rabbi. There's no way that he could, he could know all these things. How is this man speaking with authority? It was similar to what happened with... Uh, Peter and James in Acts in Acts chapter 4. You remember what happened there. When Peter and James were speaking there, the people said, who is this? Who are these guys? They're, they're not skilled people. They're not learn, learned people. They, they don't have education like we have. How can they speak with such authority? And this is the same sort of response that Jesus receives. They say to him, where did this man get these things? This shows to us, I think, Jesus' humanity, His clear humanity. The people saw Him growing up as a child as not some, not as some supernatural creature. Like, wow, we need to stay away from that guy because he's got special powers. Okay? It's not like what we see in a superhero type world where they grow up and have some special powers. Jesus was very much human. And that's why they're so surprised. They look at them and they say, we know this man from childhood. We've seen him. Isn't this the brother of these other guys, these ordinary people? He's ordinary too. It shows to us that Jesus was very much human. And He had to be human in order to, to die for us. They said to themselves and perhaps to him, isn't he this common person? Isn't he this common worker? Wasn't he, verse 3, just this, the son of a carpenter? I mean, who is this guy? How can he speak with such authority? At the end of verse 3, we know that they're not asking questions inquisitively. They're not just trying to find out the answer. They, they really frustrated with him. Look at the last part of verse 3. And they took offense at him. A man with such simple origins should not have had that much wisdom and power. Who was this guy? What was he doing? And as a result of their offense at him, verse 4, they fail to give him the honor that he deserves. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own Household. This is a famous proverb that that Jesus uses. That a prophet is not without honor in his own hometown. Jesus is referring to himself as a prophet. I mean, of all people that should recognize a person, of all people that should give a person honor, who would it be? It would be these three groups of people that he talks about. His own hometown. They should be honoring him. His own relatives, his own household, surely should be should be reverencing him and giving him honor. But instead, he receives none. Now, the fact that he includes both not not just Nazareth, but also his relatives and his household, that is his own family, the fact that he includes them suggests that, that his family still has not believed in him. 
that his brothers were were not at the point of receiving him. And we know that we know that this is true from John chapter seven verse five, where it says, "At this time, not even his brothers were believing in him." And Jesus was not someone who just from the time he was little, when people knew him, oh yes, I know that that's God, that's the Messiah, right in front of me. Because Jesus was very much human and acted very similarly to the people around him in many ways. Obviously without sin, however. But it indicates that his own family had not received him. But notice verses 5 and 6, 5 and 6 because it tells us that it, it seems to me that the people actually limit his work by their unbelief. Verse 5, And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. I believe these two verses are connected. He wondered at their unbelief. As a result of their unbelief, he could do no miracle there because people would not believe in him. Now, now this is a big question that we need to answer because how is it that Christ can be limited? We've looked at this uh, before because we, we certainly cannot say that, that he is like us in the sense that he cannot do anything outside of himself. But you've got to remember that Jesus took on for himself the form of humanity so that he was a man who had to eat. Matthew chapter 4. When he was in the, the wilderness for 30 days or, or 40 days, then he, he got out and he ate. He, he was hungry. He is also a man who sleeps. We saw that when we looked at Jesus in the boat. Remember when the storm came up, they were going across the lake. Jesus was tired from a long day. As part of his, uh, as a part of his humanity, Jesus had limitations. Now these were self-imposed limitations. Jesus certainly was God, and and at the same time he was limitless in his power, but he was restricting himself for the purpose of taking on humanity. And here, what we have is is Jesus limiting himself to to whether or not the people would believe. Okay, If you're going to believe in me, then I'm going to do some great works for you. But if you're not going to believe, I'm not going to do it. His miracles were very much connected to His message. And when, when people were insensitive, when they were unwilling to hear His message, then there was no reason for Him to perform miracles. you remember what the purpose of Jesus performing the miracles was? What was the purpose? Was it so that he could gain a bigger following so that he could give a message? No. Jesus did not need to do that. In fact, he already had a huge following. He didn't want to gain a bigger following. Was it so that he could uh, just receive all this great notoriety and popularity? No. His miracles were for the very purpose of authenticating his message. Jesus performed those miracles in order to authenticate His message to show that, yes, I am God. You see, what I've been telling you is true and I'll show you. Here you go. And so His miracles were connected to His message. And His miracles really were preserved for those who are ready to believe. His purpose in the miracles were not to entertain. He was not trying to gain a following in that sense. 
Now, we have to understand here that Christ is not limited like we are limited. He's not limited by other people in the sense that, okay, if they believe, I can do works. If they don't believe, I can't. But sometimes He requires belief in order for Him to do the works. And that's what I think is happening here. He's saying, if you're going to believe, then I am going to to uh, accomplish my purposes here. And this is part of Jesus' self-emptying, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, that He took on the very form of a servant and made Himself in the likeness of man and He became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. That He emptied Himself. He, he voluntarily gave up the independent use of His attributes. It wasn't that He couldn't do these things. It wasn't that He couldn't perform these miracles. It wasn't that they were tying His hand and saying, no, you can't do it. But rather that He was choosing not to. This is what is happening here. He was choosing not to because of their unbelief. For example, when Peter walked on the water, okay, we're coming to that here, uh, I believe it's at the end of this chapter, but when Peter walked on the water, do you think that Jesus would have called him out of the boat? Okay, think of that story. Do you think Jesus would have called him out of the boat if Peter had not believed in Jesus? If Peter had not believed that Jesus could do it, do you think Jesus would have said, Peter, come on out? Well, perhaps. We don't know for sure, but probably not. Let me ask it to you this way. Did Jesus have the power to cause all of the other disciples to come out on the water and walk? Did He have the power? Yes. Now, why didn't they come out and walk on the water? I would say it's because of their unbelief. Okay? Now, that, I'm not saying that they're all unbelievers. What I'm saying is they did not believe that Jesus had the power to do it at that time in their lives. So, when Jesus restricts Himself like He's doing here, He's saying, verse 5, he could do no miracle there except He laid hands on a few sick people. He is restricting Himself in the sense that if these people are not going to believe, then I'm not going to perform works for them. These great miracles. They need to put my their faith in Me. Think about the, the woman with the hemorrhage. Okay, Lots of people touched Jesus on that day, didn't they? Why didn't all those other people... What was the difference between her and all that other crowd that was around? What was the difference? What did she have that they didn't? She had faith in Christ that He could do it. And so all she had to do was, was reach out and touch the edge of His garment. And Jesus healed her. That is what Jesus is about doing. He's saying, I am going to pour out My works on you if you will only believe in Me. The point here is that faith is the conduit, the means by which God uses, uh, uses His power and by, by which God displays His power. Now, perhaps you're not seeing God work in your life. Perhaps you are, are much like those other 11 disciples. Maybe there's times in your life where you're saying, where is God and why is He not working? It could be that you have not believed in Christ like you should. It could be that your, your faith is weak. Remember the, the connection that we've seen in previous. In fact, when, 
when Jesus was calming the storm. He said, why do you fear? Do you still have no faith? He said to the, the to Jairus when, when his daughter had died, he said, don't be afraid, only believe. We fear in life. We fear that things are not going to turn out as God pleases because we lack faith in Him. So Jesus came unto His own people, verses 1 and 2, but, verses 2 through 6, His own did not receive Him. Now, we, we come to John chapter 1, verse, verse 12 that we read earlier. It says, But, and this is the great message for us, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, that is the privilege, to become the child of God. So, so listen, I'm going to my own, own hometown, Jesus says, and if they are not going to believe, then I'm spreading out the message to the people around him. This is what he does here in verses 7 through 13. As many as who will receive me, I will give them the privilege of becoming my child. So he opens, up, opens it up to the people around. <coughs> the message was going to be spread <coughs> around. And here's how he was going to do it. He was going to send out the twelve. We see this in verse 7. <coughs> Notice how he sent them. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. Now this had been anticipated that Jesus would send these people out because in chapter 3, verse 14, it says that Jesus called these twelve disciples to follow Him and He was going to do it for the purpose of teaching the Gospel and being able to cast out unclean spirits and do miracles. So we kind of anticipated that Jesus would eventually send these people out. But here we actually see them going out for the first time. And He sends them out in pairs. Now, why do you suppose He sent them out in pairs as opposed to one or, or larger groups? I think the reason is to bolster their credibility. Okay? So that they could go out into the, into the houses, into the cities, and be able to have confidence that, that we are coming as two witnesses of what Christ has done. And particularly in that day, you needed two witnesses in order for something to be validated. In fact, we, we do the same thing today. With, when a wedding is performed, we have, we have to do it in the presence of two or three witnesses. And that's a scriptural principle. And so I think this is effective in the way that they minister to people. That they're not just coming on the basis of my crazy idea. Look at i got this other guy here. He believes the same thing. He saw the same thing. And it, it also provided for them mutual support so that when one was, was frustrated or, or discouraged and the other one could bolster up their confidence, that they could say, hey, let's work together and get this message out. So they were sent in pairs. second part of verse 7 tells us that they had authority, and this is interesting, to cast out demons. Okay, It says that He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean Spirits. I think the reason that Jesus does this is because there is very real opposition going on, particularly to their ministry because they were so closely connected to Jesus. And He knew that just as He received opposition to His ministry with all these unclean spirits coming, that they would also receive much opposition with regard to the demon world. And so, again... Jesus is giving them this power to cast out unclean spirits so that they will have 
they will be able to authenticate their message. And when people see their works, see that they have the power to do this, that, that only someone from God can do such a thing. And so this message must be correct. Now in verses 8 and 9 we find that in the sending of the twelve, Jesus tells them that they can only have limited provision. Um, I'm sorry, I missed... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, verses 8 and 9. Yep. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. So they had limited provision. The tunic there that you read in verse 9 was the inner garment. And people in that day would often wear a second tunic. The second one would be used for keeping themselves uh, warm in the cold night air. And the implication I think that Jesus is making here is, is that all of the securities of life, okay, your money, your food, your, your extra tunic, your extra uh, blanket or whatever you need, you, you need to put that stuff aside. I'm going to take care of all those things. And what you need to do is you need to go and trust God. Trust God that He will provide for you while you're out there. And He's going to tell us how they will be provided for. But the other thing that it does is it it shows that these people are not coming um, they're not coming with all of these provisions and worried about nothing else. They come with the basis basis of necessities that they have the the very least that they possibly can have when they come into a city and start preaching the message, so that people would recognize that th- there's no strings attached here. They're not trying to. To gain a following, they're, they're trying to proclaim a true message. And so in verses 10 and 11, we have this purposeful mission that, that Jesus sends them out on. And He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Now, the first thing that he tells them is that wherever you go, stay there in that town until you leave. Don't switch houses. Don't be bouncing around to different places. And I think the point here is there's probably a temptation that as you start your ministry, it's kind of modest accommodations. And someone finds out about your ministry and says, hey, I've got this palace over here. You'd have much better time. It'd be much more comfortable for you. So come on with me. So avoid that temptation of trying to to gain a, a better location, to stay in the same place. And I think the purpose of this principle is twofold. First, you need to have a simplicity of lifestyle. And then secondly, you need to be content with the provisions that you've received. Okay, So whichever house you start in, that's the one you should finish. Now, now how do they know when to move? Verse 11 tells us that... When someone does not receive you or listen to you, that's when you need to take off. It says, shake the dust off of the soles of your feet. This was uh, what the Jews would do literally when they returned to the homeland, the, the promised, the, uh, the holy land, I should say. They would remove the foreign dust from the soles of their feet because that would actually make the land unclean, defiled. And so they would shake the dust off the soles of their feet before they stepped across into the Holy Land. And Jesus was saying to them, listen, if they're going to reject you, okay, their rejection is a symbolism of what the town is doing. They're rejecting me. 
And if they reject me, then you move out from there. They're not going to be a part of the true Holy Land, the true Israel. If they're not going to accept your message, they have not accept me, accepted me. And I think the same thing is true for us today. That if someone does not receive the message of Jesus Christ from the Scriptures, and you go to them, you tell them what Jesus has done, what He demands of them, and what He offers, and they reject it. They have not rejected you. They have not rejected the message solely. They've rejected Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the Gospel. And Christ must be believed. Notice the nature of their ministry in verses 12 and 13. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Their message was a message of repentance. This is the very message that Jesus came with. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, He says, The time has come. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe in the Gospel. This is what the disciples were doing as well. And they did this while they were casting out demons and healing people. Now, why do you suppose they were doing this? We, we said earlier that it was to authenticate the message. But, but I think these were really a demonstration of Christ's power over the, the supernatural world. And it confirmed their message. Now, now, you may be thinking, well, why doesn't God give us that? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't our message be that more effective if we could cast out demons and heal people? We could go to someone's door and say, listen, this is the message of Christ. And they say, no, I don't believe that. Well, hold on a second. Do you have any sicknesses or demon-possessed people in the house? Because I can show you that this is real. Wouldn't people believe us if we had that type of power? Why can't Christ give us that so that our message would be more credible, more acceptable? Well, I would suggest that those special ministries of the Holy Spirit were only necessary while the Scriptures were still being written. Okay? This is a very important point. That those ministries, those ministries of being able to cast out demons and heal people were only necessary while the Scriptures were being written. That Jesus did that because the whole of Scripture had not been given. That, that God's full revelation had not been put into written form. The same thing is true in Acts. You'll find that, that the apostles are, are doing these same sorts of miracles. But still, the, the Scriptures had not been fully written. Do you realize that we have the second best revelation that there possibly can be from God? Okay, the first is Jesus Christ Himself. Hebrews tells us that He is the exact representation of God. But the second best revelation is better than powers, miracles, being able to cast out demons and heal people. The second best revelation is the, the finished Word of God. We have that. And that's all people need. Do you realize that? That's all you needed to come to Christ. You didn't need to see some miracle performed. You didn't need someone you didn't need to see God work in a, an extraordinary way. All you needed was the scriptures because that is how God speaks to us today. And as I've stated before, people will not believe 
If they have not believed Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone was raised from the dead in front of their eyes. Do you realize that? If you went to someone's house, someone had just died in their house, you gave them the message from the Word of God as God wanted you to give it, and they rejected it. And you said, you know what? Hold on a second. Let me raise your son from the dead, and then maybe you'll believe. You know what Jesus says? No. John chapter 11, it will not happen. If they have not believed the message from the Scriptures, they will not believe if someone is raised from the dead. We don't need those miraculous powers today. We don't need any special uh, abilities in order to make God's message more credible. It already is credible on its own. And so that's all we have to give to people. The message from God today, from this passage, is that Christ came to His own people, the Nazarenes, and we could say by extension the Jews, but His own people did not receive Him. So He allowed the message to go out to all people so that as many as received Him, as many as accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, He gave the right, the privilege to become His child even to those who believe on His name. That message was rejected by His own people, but it was offered to you. It was demanded of you. Jesus came to earth to take the penalty of your sin upon Himself. The wrath of God that you deserve because of your sin was placed upon Jesus Christ, upon His shoulders, He died for you. And because of His death, He offers to you the opportunity to become a part of His family. That's why He says you, you have the right now to become a child of God. All you have to do is trust in Him alone for your salvation. Saving faith includes two primary aspects. Repentance and belief. Repentance is simply turning from sin. It's a change of mind about about sin and about God and about righteousness. It's changing from what, what the world thinks to what God thinks. It's, it's a belief. We also have to believe. In, order, in, in addition to repentance, we also have, have to believe. That's why in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says that it is even to those who believe on His name. That means just believe in what His name represents. That's why... Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 say, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. God's not going to twist your arm. He's not, go He's not desperate for your response. He simply lays out the demand for you. Believe in Me. And it's your responsibility to turn to Him because He is your rightful owner. He created you. He's doubly your owner because He bought you with the blood of Christ. And so your response is to turn to Him in repentance and faith. And your choice here determines whether He will judge you or whether He will accept you. He doesn't accept you on your own merit, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, but on the merit of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And so we, 
not just at the time of our salvation, but continually throughout our lives, should shout with the songwriter, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Are you trusting in Christ? Do you realize that when you turn to Jesus, that He could actually marvel in your unbelief? That's what it says in verse 6. And He wondered. The the word literally means marveled. He, He was amazed at their unbelief. There's only two times that it is recorded in Scripture that Jesus was amazed at something. One is here. People who should have believed did not. He was amazed at that. The other time when was someone shouldn't have believed and did, that was the centurion. Remember the centurion said, Jesus, will you heal my, my child? And Jesus said, yes, I'll do it. And he said, well, why can't you just say it with a word? And at the end of that, Jesus says, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. And the word that, that is used there is that he marveled, he wondered, he was amazed at that person's belief. That's Luke chapter 7, verse 9. Does Jesus ever marvel at you and me? If so, what does He marvel about? Does He marvel at you like the centurion from Luke chapter 7? That wow, a person who you wouldn't expect to believe actually believed. Or is He marveling at you because you've had so much given to you and yet you don't believe? I'm afraid that he, he may marvel at us like he marveled at the Nazarenes. Perhaps he looks at you and me at times and says, here's a person with loving parents, has his own copy of my entire written revelation, the Bible. He has a church, he or she has a church that prays for them, faithful teaching from the church, a comfortable home with lots of opportunities and encouragement, a job, and yet this person wants nothing to do with me. And Jesus is amazed at our unbelief. I think Jesus does marvel at us sometimes when we sit under the preaching of the Word, enjoy the fellowship of the saints, know all the Bible stories, all the quiz answers, and they're still... No zeal. There's no heart behind it. No desire to grow. No effort to put Him first. And so I would say to you and and to myself that Nazareth here in Mark chapter 6 is a warning to us. That familiarity can breed a spectacular unbelief. That the more we... Sometimes when we sit in things and don't allow the the truth to grip our hearts, it can result in a spectacular unbelief. And all the while, we can be coasting through the course of life thinking that everything's fine because we're we're checking off everything on our list. God wants us to check off and we think it's okay. But as we've been seeing on Sunday nights, God wants our hearts. He doesn't want simple conformity to just do all the right things. He wants us to do the right things with the right heart behind it. Do you believe in Jesus and are you following Him?
What is it that He is marveling about in your life? Hopefully, it is a result. It is as a result of your belief in Him and your desire to follow Him. That is the challenge that that we should learn from today. That Nazareth did not believe, but we have the opportunity, and with great joy, we can follow Him with a heart to serve Him. Let's pray. Lord, we admit that we find our satisfaction in life from so many other things other than You and Your Word. The things that You have promised that would satisfy. And we fill up our life and our time with lots of things. But many of them are not for Your glory. In fact, we want to live for our pleasure because we are sinful people. Even as believers, we are sinful people. We still have the vestige of sin in our hearts and we still look back every once in a while at the the pleasures that we once had and we admit that we need Your help and Your grace. When we look at passage like this today, we are thankful that the message of Jesus Christ did not stop at His own hometown, His own house, His own people, but it was expanded and spread to to all nations. And even currently, You are doing a work in all nations so that all will hear that You are a great God and worthy of all praise and that You alone deserve our worship. And we want to be right before You. We want to be acceptable in Your sight. And so we're thankful that Jesus Christ stands in our place. But even though our salvation is secure, we still turn from You at times. And so we ask that You would work in our hearts this morning and help us to be faithful to You and to believe what You have given to us in Your Word, to be diligent in studying it and learning about it. And we want to be pleasing to You in every area of life. Help us to do that, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.